It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's January. Holidays are over. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Holidays are over, and it's anti-trash month, which means yes. we actually get to talk about good movie movies. movies. Good movies. And, uh, you know, hopefully... I don't know. I don't know if listeners like anti-trash. I like to think they do. Maybe they. I like to think they like a break from from the the the, the genre stuff the as much as we do. Standard good trash fair. I see. I'd say standard good trash fair. We we still tend to throw uh, genre picks in for our anti-trash ones. Yeah, uh, we I do. think this week's no exception. Uh, right? It's a horror movie. Yeah, proto. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's that's scary. definitely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, hey, welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course, unless it's January. Ooh. And then we get to do our anti-trash marathon, which is uh, January 2020 is where we are, and Arthur has curated a um, mysterious and hidden selection of films, somehow involving the number 20, as it is the year 2020. Uh, so, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was produced and released in 1920. Therefore, that's why we picked it. hundred years ago. Isn't that it, wild? It's I, I thought about that a lot while watching this movie. It's 100 years old. And we also got to see it on that awesome print for a 100-year-old film that made it look so good. That Kino Lorber print is just great. At least that's what I watched, the canopy version. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, was, I think that's what we all... Good time for a public service announcement. Uh, hey, listener, don't forget, uh, in this time of the Disney and Apple streaming services, Canopy's free with a library card, man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they've got this uh, this great print of uh, of Cabinet Dr. Caligari. I started to watch it. I want to say on Prime? I don't know. I I started to watch it somewhere else, and it looked like garbage. Right. Uh, And immediately uh, saw that it was on Canopy. I was like, okay, this will probably be better. Yeah. And it was. It's public domain, so there's a lot of prints out there, a lot of different editions. But Mm. it was nice to find a really clear, really beautiful print on -hmm. on Canopy. Canopy for the discerning streamer. Oh, indeed. Well, that was snooty. Um, By the way, that was me trying to get us some money. Dear listener, um, it is the year of our Lord 2020, and I am still Dustin. Oh yeah, I'm, uh, we got to do introductions. I'm yeah. still Dalton. I am Arthur. Yeah. So yeah. By the way, we just want to make sure we covered yeah. that. No so, holiday name changes. No. Yeah. We we are still ourselves. Although I'm changing my name to an unpronounceable symbol. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. That's a big move for you. Yeah. Yeah. The scholar. The scholar formerly known as. Yeah. Self. I feel like that's gonna be a that's gonna be really big for your brand. <laughs> yeah. That's gonna be so <laughs> good. Yeah. Oh my god. I said like. Uh, so, like, uh, I work for WeWork in this episode? Yeah, I don't, I'm not a, a little bit. Yeah, not a big fan of that. We're going to switch it up a little bit. All right. But um, if you're tuning into the show for the very first time, um, we don't normally do movies like this, first of no. all. But uh, what we do will look like this always. Uh, we do a synopsis, which is going to spoiler-free, although, again, this is a 100-year-old movie, literally. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be a, a less spoiler averse than we normally are but generally speaking we avoid that in a synopsis we avoid it a little bit less with a thumbs up thumbs down reviews uh there's even less degree of avoidance once we get down to uh expanding a syllabus and then we get down to business which is analysis and at that point uh we don't care about spoilers at all just so you know um how this normally goes even though today may be something of an exception but without any further ado let's go ahead and hear that synopsis from mr arthur gordon sir Director Robert Vinnes' masterpiece of German Expressionism and horror takes place in the off-kilter village of Hostenwald. A mysterious man named Dr. Caligari brings his traveling somnibulist act Cesar into town, putting on a carnival show of fortune-telling and prophecy. But soon, a rash of mysterious murders take place. Could it be Cesar or Caligari? Francis tries to get to the bottom of the mystery following the death of a close friend, a death Cesar predicted. One of the most influential movies of all time, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, was released in 1920 to critical and popular acclaim and has been referred to as the first true horror film, the precursor for art house films, and a landmark silent film. That all of those one, things Arthur. are true. Uh, I kept calling him Cesare. Uh, I don't know if that's, that's how the Germans would say it. Caesar. Caesar. I had a lot of fun just screaming Cesare to my uh, to my wife. Cesare! <laughs> yeah, so that's really what that came down to. Like in a very kind of Stella Streetcar Named Desire kind of uh, way? Cesare! No, in more like a deeply offensive Italian accent sort of oh, way. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 Cesare! Yeah, yeah exactly. You a baba boopy. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got you. Uh, pizza Sorry, pasta, audience. it's a me Mario. Look, if you're, we're still wow. allowed to be mean to the Irish. We're still allowed to be mean to Italians. That's the rules. Period. Dims the rules. I, yeah. I, I have a good friend now uh, from my class that I took last semester who is an Italian, and um, we I may catch some flack, but I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, Griffin uh, from the Bay and Chapile, uh, who you can hear over on the Praise Down every once in a while, uh, is, is Italian. Yeah, we, we have fun with that. Look, you know, it's, 
white white ethnics we we lost our ability to like feel cool when we uh i don't know stop getting into union strikes i don't know we do need to make fun of them whenever we can yeah, we'll make fun of us at yes. all times please yeah. uh more importantly let's make fun of this movie or yes. hold it in high esteem i don't know well we'll see what happens uh so let's go ahead and do some thumbs up thumbs down reviews now i've seen them film before have you guys ever seen cabinet of dr caligari before i had seen it once before yes this was the first time for me. I well, assumed you had both had a chance to visit it previously. Virgins always go first, so go ahead. Uh, look, I, I do a lot of jokes on this show about how I'm the dumb one. Uh, I have fun with it. Uh, I'm kidding most of the time. This is one of those movies where I felt dumb, uh, and not because it was like too obtuse for me to like it. I was delighted by this movie. I thought it was an absolute joy. Uh, but I don't really know how to talk about it still. Uh, you know, I, I only watched it about two and a half days ago, so I am still digesting it. But I, I'm really so struck uh, by how different the idea of making a movie was in 1920 that I, I don't know that I've. This is the first silent film that I've watched start to finish. You know, I've seen yeah. some some Chaplin and Keaton uh, clips, obviously, uh, but I've never seen any of their films uh, all the way through. Um, I, this is uh, talkies or silent. Uh, so yeah, th this was my first, uh, full, complete watch of a silent film. So that alone was a very unmooring experience. Well, you saw The Artist. No, never got to. Oh, okay. No, I, I don't go. You weren't on that podcast? No. It was just me and you. Yeah. It was just the two of us. That was one the of the only, only episodes ones, yeah. I've never just been on. Yeah. two of Okay. Yeah. It was the only one for years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so no, haven't seen The Artist either. Wowzers. Yeah. So this was the very first one for me. And Guys, I gotta say, I, I feel like I, uh, I've been sleeping on silent movies. They're good. Well, I'm an idiot. Caligari's an anomaly. I will give. I, I, well, yeah. Look, I've I've heard a lot of them have not aged super well. Uh, my understanding is the closer we got to talkies, the more on-screen text there was in silent films, which I imagine would be obnoxious. Obnoxious, and that's one thing that Caligari has going for it. It's very dialogue light, and I, I think that plays to the strengths. Uh, of the medium as it was at the time, right? Like, uh, again, technologically speaking, and but outside of the tech, just in terms of, we'd only been making movies for, what, 25 years at that point, if that? Uh, Feature-length films for 20 years? Um, I forget when the that's first features. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I thought. So it, it's so interesting. I mean, it's like playing... It's like playing a video game from 1995. It's just a different experience. Uh, and getting to visit any art form and, and that kind of like nascent stage uh, of uh, of it kind of calcifying to what it would be, I think is really cool. And, and, and seeing the creative ways in which they do style with, you know, basically no technology. I mean, it is all analog as it could be. They tended to fall back more on the same sort of techniques you would use for stage play. And mm -hmm. I think that lends so much to this fever dream experience that is the cabinet of dr caligari uh, and we'll uh I, I, maybe we'll steer away from the big spoiler uh for a while i know we just were talking about how it's a hundred year old film so get over it but i i somehow went in not knowing that there was a, a big old twisty two twisty tutu uh, at the end of this and yeah i want to preserve that so setting that aside this whole film still is framed as as a story right we get up top this pretty naturalistic uh setting and this this guy's uh talking to this old dude as a framing device uh and then we follow our lead character and and his his jane his wife i believe is how fiance, he describes fiance is yeah, how he describes you right um and we we shift to and it is kind of reminiscent of that shift from black and white to technicolor that we'd get in 39 with wizard of oz uh, but 19 years earlier, Cabinet Dr. Caligari is already thinking, well, we can go ahead and let you know you're entering a weird world by changing things up on you in the first couple of scenes. Uh, and just seeing that idea already having taken hold within filmmakers' minds is, is really cool. Like, that, that was just really exciting for me. And then, um, still being a black and white film, the use of color to, like, saturate the picture so they can get something resembling color through lighting and, uh, I'm guessing, uh, something to do with film uh, itself. Yeah. I, I don't, again, I don't know a lot about how movies were made in the 1920s. I feel very dumb talking about this movie, and yet I just I'm so excited for this episode because it, it, it's such a great time. And, and listener, if you're like me and you, you like what you like and you have a hard time making yourself do homework, I get it if you've never gotten to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm -hmm. But if you have any interest in anything even remotely spooky in the pictures, you got to catch up with this one because man, it is 
just electrifying. Uh, the the makeup on Caesar Cesare, however we're gonna let's just stick with Caesar, uh, is so good and, and so simple. I mean, there's nothing to it, but it, the the makeup on Caligari himself is also fantastic. Like, and it is very clearly makeup. Like, the, they're not really trying to hide artifice in this film, not which I really appreciate. I mean, again. We we love talking about oh man the seventies were so weird and everybody was doing drugs and they made the holy mountain and they talk about how films and artifice do we did it in the twenties and it was so cool we were already doing it at the birth of film and just to see all the things that we think uh, you know we we see a film in twenty nineteen we get excited when it does something different but we've been experimenting as as a, a storytelling. Uh, community as a, as humans, we've been messing around with what the bounds of film were uh, from the very start, and that for me uh, is probably the most exciting thing about sitting down to watch a hundred year old movie is seeing. No, you know what we we've been pretty creative with this art form even before we had computers uh, or budgets to speak of. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this movie. Uh, it's weird as heck. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Um, you guys have seen it before. I'm ready to listen to what you got to say. Well, all right, Arthur. Um, what do you have to say about your review of Dr. Caligari? Yeah, so like I said, it's the second time I've seen this. And, uh, man, that that Kino Lorber print that we saw yeah. is just so clear, so crisp, and helps so much of that come across um, and makes it feel so modern in a way. Um, the photography is just gorgeous and, and the way it's shot. and um, I mean, it's just a masterpiece of art i mean just the the set designs the production design and that very stylistic expressionist uh design they're using with the sharp curves and the wonky off kilter elements of, of this yeah the asymmetry and, is so cool yeah. uh and the makeup like you said uh, and, and even caligari's makeup himself is is incredible looking the and, grease streaks in his hair yeah, yeah. yeah it looks really cool um, but yeah, those big bold black strikes and the the use of the shadows to kind of to paint the scenery and and make this fever dream come to life is is fascinating and, and it moves really well and it's really interesting and and to see it kind of broken up into six acts is a fascinating choice and, and kind of seeing that act structure come together early on and everything that's doing so early you know we talk so much about Citizen Kane being one of the most influential movies of all time but I mean you got this right here 1920 and it's doing so much to inspire Citizen Kane yeah, but for also. Sure. You know, horror films. 15, 20 years and, in war. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hollywood yeah. aped this style for God, a generation. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, it, it, it's, it's at a, a precipice, I think of changing the game. And, and I think that's fascinating to see, you know, a, a international film of this nature come in and then really leave a mark like that, that we don't quite see as often today, you know, it doesn't feel like, um, outside cinema has much impact on American cinema anymore, but here's a, a prime example of that working really well. Uh, uh, the characters are all fascinating. The, the design, the world is really interesting. Um, and trying to piece together what's happening and what's going on is, is a fun ride. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, you know what much else to say. I mean, I think it's just really works really well. I, you kind of have to experience it. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, let it wash over you, if you will. But, I mean, it's it just the the use of the iris and the close up and there's something too I, I was reading some reviews and somebody mentioning you know completely shooting in the set and in the studio uh, and omitting any kind of naturalist scenery uh, really kind of changes the way you view this and you're so used to seeing these kind of landscape shots or nature shots or anything in film in any movie you usually have some kind of establishing yeah. shot or and so to see something so internalized is really cool and and interesting you know compared to what we see today and the, the use of the close-ups on on the faces and i think that's really uh interesting and uh, is this after dryer or is this before dryer uh this is uh during during this is, this is the moment of yeah so dryer's making vampire and, yeah and uh, joan of arc, joan of arc and, yeah. so I, I was thinking a lot about that in the close-up and the, carl theodore dryer yeah uh, if you're trying to pick up um, what we're laying down there dear listener so. don't look at me i actually did know this time <laughs> i knew who that was oh, he I'm, knows the names no i was saying yeah. for the listeners yeah, yeah okay so, uh, but yeah, I, I really dig this movie. I think it's fascinating. I think it's important and, and just, just a total experience to, to go through. You yeah. said something, Arthur, that I, I thought was really interesting talking about this, you know, th this, uh, international cross pollinization going on. And it made me think, you know, back in our, our last anti-trash marathon, we talked about the heavy influence on, uh, Westerns and samurai films yeah. and those two kind of shaking hands a lot and trading different ideas. Yeah. And it is interesting that filmmakers were already, uh, before, you know, 
uh, just general audiences were able to kind of consume international cinema on a wide level, you know, as is super easy today. Uh, but it's interesting to see even before it was easy for general audiences that, yeah, filmmakers were already like trying to figure out, okay, who's doing what? Like, what are the things that we need to know about? And that's, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Arthur. Dustin, uh, was this just the second time for you or oh, you studied a, this a third a little or fourth bit? time I've seen okay. it probably, yeah. Just I, for funsies or you studied this one? I, I think I've had it in a class before. Okay. Yeah, it feels, it feels like I have. Yeah, maybe for Springer's maybe. intro to film when I was maybe. making up those uh, undergrad hours. I wouldn't be surprised. So, yeah, I think maybe we watched it for that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. I mean, it's one of the all-time greats. I, I'm Okay, Conrad, Conrad Veet's performance just waking up his face the very first scene when he's under all that makeup and the, the, the sort of face twitches that he does. It's just fantastic. What you're seeing there. And, uh, I mean, that's just one small example. We talked about set design. We talked about makeup. Um, I want to talk about costuming a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there are these little lines that are sort of painted into his little, uh, you know, synobulist, uh, pajamas that he's wearing. And it, again, just to sort of give this fractured, broken up kind of figure, uh, for Caesar and, uh, or Caesar or whatever we're going to be saying. Um, you know what? I'm going to stop. All right. Executive decision. I'm going to stick with Cesar. I like that. Okay. I yeah. I, okay. I don't care. We can do whatever we want. I have no strong opinions uh, about this anyway. Uh, but yeah, so all of that's working. I think all the performances are really, really, really solid. And, uh, you know, uh, just Kraus is great. Uh, yeah. Veet's great. Everybody's great. Um, and so it, it's, it's just a very, very solid little silent film. And it is very visual. And it is super, super low on the uh, intertitles. And, of course, at this time, the silent picture was uh, a bit more international list. Uh, that there was a bit more export really? of okay. film because you could. Okay. Oh, because it was super easy. All you got to do is just swipe out the title cards. Just change out the title cards, Makes and, sense. and you've got a, you've got an English version of the same movie. And okay. so uh, it was easy to do that. Well, kind the of stories thing. are less complicated, so you don't have to worry about whether or not things are going to translate super well. Right. Yeah, so you don't have to worry lot, about cultural stuff. A lot of French and German film were going back and forth sense. at the time. But I mean, that being said. People did know American versus German versus French products, and they tended to prefer what they preferred. And so American cinemas, you know, tended to prefer American film uh, for obvious reasons. When did uh, when the Frenchies fall in love with our stuff? That's a 50s and 60s thing, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a Cairo okay. de Cinema thing. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's Bazan and all his crew. Yeah, yeah um, okay. Uh, and so, but nonetheless, and then that... that that was also sort of a instant glut because during uh, the uh, the war, uh, especially during the occupation, there were not a lot of American films being imported, yeah, and obviously. all of a sudden there was like this massive sort of download of all of just a drop. Well, of, that's why I said fifties and sixties. I, yeah, yeah. I had a feeling it had you know the war was a big part of that. And all of a sudden, Truffaut and uh, Godard and uh, Bazan are watching these movies, all of these movies, and there's just so many of them to see, and they saturate the market at that point. Uh, but anyway, we're not talking about that. What we are talking about? Yeah, we got to talk about thirty years. Prior. Yeah, Kevin and Dr. Caligari, though, is it, just, it's a really, really solid, really, really influential film. It is, uh, again, very um, ambitious mm -hmm. in its artistic style. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I mean, it it was it was a it was a bet. It was a guess. Uh, it was a gamble. Yeah, the uh, screenwriters had never produced a film before. They didn't know anybody in the industry, which I found really interesting. Yeah, and so yeah, Janowitz and uh, Mayer are their names, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and so Carl Mayer. Carl Mayer. Should I know that name? Isn't it? Is he related to Louis B. Mayer? I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, uh, I can't tell you that. His uh, big credits up top are a film called Sunrise, uh, The Last Laugh, and Danton, all from right after Caligari. Oh, he worked on Sunrise with Murnau. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Uh, very, very cool. Sunrise is like one of the first uh, talky sort of combination um, sound pictures. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the first uh, Academy Award winners for Best Artistic Picture. Uh, if memory serves. But anyway. Well, yeah, they only did that like twice. Yeah, they hardly ever did that. Um, weird rando fun fact, Dustin, today, apparently, is what we're Yeah, getting. you were just all about the trivia tidbits I today. I, I like this. I don't, know, I don't know why I'm doing that. But, no, I'm, this is a fun mode for you. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I I guess I'm just saying I like it a bunch. It's really, really good, and um, um, I like it very hard. Um, that's that's all I want to say. There well, fair enough. All right, so let's, uh, let's do the thing, though, and uh, let's teach this in a class. Oh, what class are so much higher? What class are you teaching, and how are you using it? What are you pairing it with? What are the readings? What are the watchings? What do you do, Dalton? You look very, very nervous, but I'm going to go to you first. That's what do okay. You say, say the things. Like, you know, again, our the whole gist of the show, right, is where we do shows that you wouldn't normally talk about in a film studies course. So when we do a film that you would reasonably teach in a film studies course, and potentially could structure an entire class around. The stakes feel a lot higher, mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like. And obviously the conceit of this part of the show is doesn't have, the, the film that we're discussing this week doesn't have to be what the class is about. Uh, and that's going to be very helpful 
to me this week. Uh, so we are going to be doing a, a series on uh, relative realities uh, in storytelling. Uh, mostly we're going to concentrate on film, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, so big, big spoilers up top. We're, I'm, I'm ripping this Band-Aid off real quick, so skip right. ahead like 45 seconds if you're not into it. Do it. So it turns out that we we got a, a full Inception situation. Uh, my man's living... Shutter in, Island. Or, yeah, it was Shutter Island situation. Thank you. I got my Leo DiCaprio movies from 2010 mixed up. Uh, yeah, we, we, got a, we got a full Shutter Island situation. Uh, Jonathan has uh, not actually gone to the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's all an in, invention of his mind. Um, I don't know how I like it on this movie, honestly. I, I thought it was fun. Uh, I read some stuff. There's there's some conflicting stories about whether or not the writers were into this original ending. Uh, some some film scholars think that uh, they probably wouldn't have been into it because based on their reads of the screenplay, this kind of undercuts some of the social uh, commentary that the writers were intending. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a film that we find out uh, is messing with reality. Uh, it is subjective. It is not objective. What happens behind somebody's eyes is their own world, and you can never know what goes on inside of there. So we're going to talk a little bit about stories that play with this idea. Uh, and I think starting, boom, let's start at 1920, get uh, Cabinet Dr. Caligari out of the way, and say this is one of the earliest examples on screen of uh, an 11th hour change in the stakes, change in the understanding of story, but also a change in your understanding of the reality of the film that you've just seen. Um, so I think that's a great place to start. Uh, and then we're going to move up to the 50s and look at Akira Kurosawa's classic Rashomon. Nice. Uh, I think the the handshake between uh, Caligari and Rashomon is just, it's just good. Like, if you're teaching a class about narrative, boom. Th- these are two really great examples, specifically narrative and film. These are just great examples up top of, you know, the early, you know, the first half of the first century of film. We're already playing with this idea of uh, cinema's a lie. Uh, so how do we deal with the idea of lies within a film? And I, I think they're just make for really interesting pairings. Next, we're going to get a little schlockier with it. We're going to front load the class with a lot of heavy academic thinking, uh, a lot of classic narratives. And then we're going to jump ahead about 50 years because, look, I know things from the 70s and beyond mostly. Uh, <laughs> we are going to be reading uh, some of Watchmen. Uh, Alan Moore and David Gibbons, a uh, seminal classic. Uh, specifically, the I think it's uh, chapter four. I think it's issue four is the one that's told through uh, Dr. Manhattan's POV. Uh, Nerds can fact check me, Uh, but probably going to concentrate pretty heavily there, maybe on the the Rorschach issue, uh, because these are two issues of the book that uh, get really heavily into this stuff. And if we're doing a whole class, I don't think we got time to watch the entire or read the entire book. Speaking of watching, though, we're going to watch part of the Watchmen TV show. Is it possible that I want to talk about this because I just finished the finale last night? Yeah, yes. probably. Probably. But I also happen to be watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the same week. Uh, and boom, I just immediately was like, all right, we got to talk about just the idea of trying to convey a different experience of reality within a narrative is, is a pretty tricky thing to do. And I, I think Caligari shows this first impulse to try at this idea. And then I think what gets done in Watchmen in 85, 86, uh, is just really clever and really smart in terms of how you structure a comic book uh, or really any you know series of anim- or, uh, captioned or narrated panels, right? Uh, sequenced art, I think, is the, the fancier way to talk about comics. Uh, but I, I think what Dave uh, Gibbons and Moore do in there is just so fascinating. And Moving forward to Watchmen, the television series, what Lindelof and his writers and directors do in the TV show. Uh, again, you know, this kind of narrative hopping is obviously something Damon Lindelof's a stranger to, but I think Watchmen, obviously, being a kind of a keystone uh, for his career as a writer and looking at him working within that same world and saying, all right, I love this book. I want to try and do some of these same ideas about the experience of time as, as nonlinear. How do we conceptualize this within a TV show? Uh, and probably we're just going to look at like episode six, seven, and eight because those are the three that really get into this kind of stuff of uh, memory being uh, malleable but also defining, uh, and memory being a, a thing that uh, you know we, that gets carried through families, and then looking at this idea of how much control do you have over your own life if you know you're born into a set of circumstances and systems beyond your control. How much can any control can one person have? As Dr. Manhattan says within the comic, uh, Watchmen, uh, we're all puppets. I can just see the strings. And I, I think playing with these 
is going to be really fun when we move forward to our next picks. Uh, and I'm just going to rattle these off pretty quick because they are all sort of of a piece. Uh, and that's going to be Frailty uh, with Bill Paxson, a film that I don't think a lot of people remember. We'll pivot back to that one. Uh, and then uh, the already mentioned Shutter Island uh, and Unsane, the Steve Soderbergh film from a couple of years ago that I think is really good. And again, much like Caligari is kind of inventive and experimental, Caligari is, you know, is this film that is entirely filmed on sound stages uh, with this deliberately um, askewed perspective on buildings and vantage points and, and backdrops and Unsane's shot on iPhones. And Soderbergh uses a, a lot of that frame uh, to, to really give you this feeling of voyeurism uh, and unsafety throughout the film. Uh, and again, in a kind of a, a flawed film. I don't, I don't think it's as good as Cabin Dark Caligari. I don't think Soderbergh probably does either. But I think a really interesting experiment, again, one of only a handful of, of major releases uh, that got shot on iPhones. Uh, so I just think is really interesting. But pivoting back to Frailty, because I think it's probably the, the least known of the films that I brought up, uh, Frailty is just this weird little movie that, I've seen probably three times now, and I, I never get tired of watching it. And I feel like every time I sit down to watch it, I have forgotten the twists and turns that it takes. But it came out in 2001. Uh, it was actually a Bill Paxton-directed uh, film. Uh, he is kind of the lead, uh, but also McConaughey gets to do a lot of heavy lifting. This is an early one in his career. Uh, and it cuts back and forth between McConaughey narrating him growing up with Bill Paxton as a father, uh, a father who is doing a series of murders that he is absolutely positive or uh, murders against demons for the greater good. Nice. Uh, and McConaughey is narrating this to a, to a cop in the present. Uh, and I, I won't spoil where that narrative goes because obviously just in that little bit of synopsis I've given you, I, I've, I've laid the ground for some pretty fertile twists. Uh, but again, I think all of these films kind of fit in a piece of each other of challenging your expectations of a narrative, letting you think certain things about what's going on, uh, revealing new pieces of information to you as it's uh, relevant. And again, that kind of thing can come across as cheating pretty pretty frequently in a narrative. But I think all of these selections do a really good job of uh, of hiding what they need to preserve the, the joy of a secret. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy as an audience member if you're an obsessive like me and you watch a lot of shit. You, you figure out most plots pretty quickly. And any time a, a story can surprise you is, is a thrill. And I think all of these stories manage to give you that thrill without cheating too much. Uh, and again, I think all of them have very interesting takes on just the idea of truth and reality and subjectivity uh, w within narrative uh, frameworks. So there you go. That's nice. the class. That's a fun class. I like, I like the thought of that. What do you think, Arthur? How will you teach your class? Yeah, I think mine would supplement Dalton's in the same semester. So if you took that one, you could take this one on the unreliable narrator in horror. Um, Ooh. Because it kind of nice. gets into that element of shifting the reality and what's expected and unexpected. And yeah, mine's like a 2,000-level course. Arthur's is going to be a three or four for sure, it sounds like. Uh, so real specialized. I think the, the main text will probably be uh, William Riggins, uh, Picaro's Mad Men, Knives and Clowns, the unreliable first-person narrator, um, in which he outlines uh, several types of unreliable narrators, hmm. um, including the Picaro, uh, the Madman, the Clown, the Knife, and the Liar, um, as the kind of five key ones uh, that are outlined in that work, uh, and then go from there, I think. Um, I think in horror, we're probably most prone to seeing the Madman, um, sure. typically. Uh, the, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which we talked about recently. Good yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that would be the key text. And then from there, I would go into Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Nice. Uh, and, and move the class that direction to lay that groundwork. And then I'd uh, I'd pick some fun genre stuff uh, from the horror uh, uh, movie genre. And I would, I would start with Secret Window. Um, Johnny Depp. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I remember this. Uh, he's got a... He's got John a, Turturro. Yeah. Turturro. Yeah, corn. yeah. a lot of corn. Oh, horn. my God. I totally forgot about yeah. this movie. You stole my story, Mr. Yeah. Rainey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I would go with uh, Secret Window. That John Turturro role should definitely be played by Tim Blake Nelson. Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. And the Johnny Depp role should be played by John Turturro. Hell, yeah. Now we're talking. That's a good movie. That's a movie. Uh, and, and then from there, I would go into uh, the one we love, Jennifer's Body, mm. Uh, mm. which features a very similar uh bookend as as caligari I, yeah. I think in a lot of ways uh and so i would uh move that direction and finally i would end with frailty actually uh, no kidding movie yeah the paxton really yeah hell a yeah of, man. a lot of love for paxton all right we're gonna have to do frailty this oh, year yeah. uh i didn't know uh Sa nick sanford our uh, friend of the show 
uh, gave this to me when we were uh, 10 years ago now, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lent, lent this to me. And yeah, I, I didn't know anybody else knew about this movie. Yeah, somebody showed it to me in college. Yeah, it's a good one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm always so excited when people know about this. Dustin, uh, what you got? Okay, I think I would make this uh, part of a module in a class on aesthetic uh Film movements. So, like, we do a Soviet montage, we do poetic realism, we do surrealism, we could do uh, German expressionism, we can move, you know, uh, around and uh, yeah. look at look at American, uh, new American cinema and, like, the structuralist film um, afterward. And then, like, look at these films, read some, you know, seminal texts, whatever, and then see the influence moving forward. So the module right now would be uh, the German expressionist film. Right, and so Caligari, I think we would use. Obviously, I think we'd use uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Sure, we'd use F. W. Murnau's Nosferatu because you know it's me and yeah. it's my class, and I can do what I want. Yeah, it's his uh, class, so he's doing Nosferatu instead of M. Gotcha. Yeah, it's uh, well, his class, and he can do what he wants to. You are allowed to cry in that classroom, Dustin. Do not let the students tell you you can't. Okay. Uh, but I'd also want to move it forward a little bit and talk about the influences and, and, and how that goes forward. And uh, Peter Lorre is actually coming back up. That's where I was, I was trying oh, to get to. okay. So he's, uh, he's the uh, villain in a, a little American film from 1940 called Stranger on the Third Floor, which is one of the very first massive sort of use. It's like a, it's like a proto-noir. Mm. Like they say maybe film noir starts in 41 with Maltese Falcon, but this is a year earlier. And it is, again, not really the detective investigation, but it's doing all of the Venetian blind lines and uh, the dream sequences and, and, and taking a lot of things that really do feel a lot like Caligari. And so I, I think I might use that film. Does that film have like a, a suburbia rear window setup? A little bit, yeah. That's kind of what I'm, I was, since you said no detectives. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's blue velvety in some sense. Okay, okay. Right. Accidental so, detective situation. Correct, gotcha. yeah. There, there's a lot going on, frame-ups and wrong bands and wrong, Love it. you know, that ah, kind of see, stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, You're not the wrong guy. With, with again, Peter Laurie. Uh, yeah, young, the wrong man. Young peas. Yeah, I didn't do it. I could never do a man. Eh? <laughs> All right. This is the Peter Laurie Appreciation Podcast. Uh, it, it should be. Um, that's what we're renaming it, the Peter Laurie Cast. Um, uh, we, are you down with PCC? <laughs> I was going to pitch the Laurie Cast where we only do Hugh Laurie and Peter Laurie works. Oh my. Alternating weeks? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, so I think we'd go at it with this. Uh, but then what we would read during this section is, first of all, we'd read Sigmund Krakauer's uh, From Caligari to Hitler, and then uh, Thomas L. Cesar. Now, i got to make sure I get this title right on this book. Uh, it is called The Devil. It's called Weimar Cinema and After by Thomas L. Cesar. So I'm assuming both of these books deal with the German, German film from the 20s to the, the rise of the Nazis. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, Krakauer's book actually begins with early cinema and oh, goes okay. all the way into the Nazis and Nazi propaganda film gotcha. is sort of where it ends up. Uh, but and, and looking at that and the debate surrounding it, whether or not Krakauer is correct in his thesis and the way El Cesar takes it down, I, I think it would be interesting in just in terms of like a historical contextual conversation around uh, German expressionism, but also – just again, looking at those influences. Uh, the last film I want to go ahead. I was, this is the cage match to which he was referring to in our chat earlier uh-huh, today. I see. Yeah, I, I want to lay down the uh, well, the thesis and the argument when we get down to analysis. Okay, I thank think you. It's, it's so we'll be... I, we'll circle back to this. Yes, we're coming okay, back. Good. Yeah, I need to. Back to that. I, I got to hear more about this. Yeah. But the last thing I want to mention though is uh, an influence of recent Jennifer Kent's The Babadook. Hell the yeah. Babadook yeah. is very. Yeah. Very I almost texted you multiple times that Dr. Caligari is the Babadook. He is the Babadook. Yeah. For sure. For sure he Which is. Which is like him. Yeah, stylistically, like, influenced in a similar kind of way. But also uh, the the psychological sort of, you know, am I losing my mind kind of narrative as sure. well. I mean, in the, 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 the lost and found uh, text, right, That that's also part of what goes on in um, Dr. Caligari yeah. and the Babadook. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, a, there's, there's narrative and visual pieces uh, that connect there very, very, very closely, and so I just a lot of great face acting in both. Too. Yes, correct. So, and again, then and, and some really sort of artistic uh, movements, especially like the the falling asleep and dreaming sequences. Sure. The car I'm thinking about production the design yeah. too, the house, and it's kind of like weird angles and grays. Mm-hmm. And so, there's other ways to do that, and it's much more, it's much less artificed, but um, artificed, much artificial is what yeah. I want to say. But I'll give you Artie's fist. Uh-uh. <laughs> Who's uh, He is. Oh, oh yeah, it's true. Duh. That's true. Um, maybe I get what you're saying days. though. It's, it's, Pow, Alice. It, it's not specifically like 
it's not the aesthetics per se, but a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. And I in, get what you're saying. And narratively also in an interesting sure. kind of way. And so thinking about that and thinking about those kind of discussions I think would be fun for a module in a class, again, on sort of cinematic um, aesthetic movements. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess that's what I'd call it, cinematic aesthetic movements. I just named it. It's fun. There you go. Good name. It's a fun class. So, so I'm Hopefully. That would be a lot of fun. All right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, your syllabus just got much longer, but this is what we're here to do. We're here to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business. Mm, that's right. If expanding the syllabus is, I don't know, the, the classroom syllabus, this is the part where we go to the teacher's lounge and smoke cigarettes and talk about dark literature. I don't know. I th- I see, I, was, I thought you were going to go with a sexual metaphor because the business oh, okay. time thing. Like, that's foreplay, and now we're going to get down now to we're gonna it. Do, no, no, no. Well, that's, yeah, teaching is the foreplay, and then we go to the teacher's lounge and get weird. <laughs> I just opened Excel. <laughs> oh, yeah, now it's time to get naughty. Oh, oh. It's business time. Yeah. I'm you... going to do some spreadsheets. I've never... <laughs> Arthur, that's Arthur. That's the banality of evil, baby. That's how all evil starts, is spreadsheets. At first, it's all just ledgers and keeping track, and the next thing you know, man. What is one plus one plus one? Yeah, not four. Uh, 111. Moving right along. All right, well, speaking of uh, <laughs> right, speaking of uh, ledgers and the banality of evil, I've got, let's get this out of the way. I gotta Tell me about these dudes. Tell me why they're fighting about German cinema. Okay. Lay it out. So Krakauer has got a thesis in from Caligari to Hitler, and what he is suggesting, and he's a film critic working, he's like a... He's, he's adjacent to the Frankfurt School, so Theodore Adorno and all those cats, Max Horkheimer, um, Walter Benjamin. And Give all me of, a year and a location. He's not far removed from the movie itself. Yeah, either, yeah. Right? I, say, uh, I know all a couple of decades. Yeah, this is the 30s yeah. you know, okay. when he's writing, or the 40s at this point, because uh, the, the reaction is sort of post-Hitler at this point. So we're in the late 40s, early 50s when he's finally writing. Okay, the text. so the war's over, but he came up with all of these guys in the, around the same time. Right, yeah. And and it, where, it, where were they coming up at? Uh, they're all in Germany. They are Frankfurt. all in Germany. Yeah, they're okay. all in Germany, and then they Frankfurt, relocate to the United States. That's except, Well, that was the piece of info I needed. Except for Benjamin, who doesn't manage to escape and kills himself. Yeah, I didn't know that. Very sad. Uh, anyway, uh, so the thesis, though, that Krakauer puts forward is that German expressionism has uh, this overwhelming sort of mind control kind of theme. Mm. Uh, you know, you can look at Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and there is a sort of like uh, controlling autocratic hero that needs to take place, you know, or needs, needs to rise up to sort of protect a culture. And so it gives this reading of German expressionist films that I don't think is invalid, that there is this sort of consistent use of domination and control that is either something that's feared or something that's weirdly sort of desired that's going on through those films. And Caligari, um, he suggests, is even though Caligari is the villain, there's a way in which uh, he suggests audiences desire to have that kind of mind control. I think and, I read part of this in my, yeah. my research for the show. Referring to the German audience's subconscious need for a yeah. tyrannical leader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I might have read a bit of this on accident. And so in that, that German expressionism, according to uh, Krakauer, sort of set people up for Hitler. Gotcha. And... So what's the counter thesis? The counter then? thesis is there weren't that many German expressionist films, and that that's it, coming. It, who's who's got the, this? Is Thomas L. Cesar? Okay, and, and he this says, is the seventies or eighties, right? Seventies and eighties, yeah. yeah. Okay, and so, so like a couple decades later, he's like, I don't know about this. It's like I don't know about this because they weren't that popular in Germany. Mm. Uh, they were very popular internationally, but okay. they weren't they weren't big sellers in Germany, and there weren't that many of them, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just they're, they weren't that. They weren't that indicative of the cultural zeitgeist of that moment. And there's a whole lot of other movies that are being made that look a lot more Hollywood. That, in fact, the reason why the film is made the way it is by Veen is because they wanted to do some product differentiation. They wanted to be able to sell it and say, this is something you haven't seen before. Yeah. And that is that is sort of the great value in the, the sort of commodity market of cinema. And so El Cesar is um, suggesting that uh, may, maybe not so much. Maybe not so much because, again, you're you're giving these movies more freight than they really were carrying in the cultural moment of the Weimar cinema leading into uh, the rise of Hitler. Yeah, so this is like me uh, 20 years from now. Uh, based, the argument in uh, from German Expressionism to, to Hitler, this argument is almost like somebody taking the early aughts and saying, all of these action movies from the early aughts, that's how we got Trump. 
And it's like, well, maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah, okay. Well, uh, but you wouldn't even pick action movies. You would yeah, pick, I was trying to think of something like, a little bit more something obscure. Something really niche. Yeah, I couldn't. And that's, A24. Well, no, I was trying to go earlier. But yeah, so it's it's just too niche, basically, right, is the yeah, argument. Yeah, that, that it's too niche. And it's, or canon films. And, and, yeah, there we go. <laughs> and it, and they, were, they were just too unflu- un- uninfluential at that moment. Gotcha. But, I mean, there is something to what Krakauer says, and he's, he is one of the sort of big daddies of early film theory as okay. well. So, Well, yeah, I don't want to shoot him down too hard. Yeah, yeah, and he's got, he's got another great book on um, film style. That's, that's pretty good. Well, M's, uh, M's considered German expressionism, right? Correct. The thing correct. that I found interesting when you were saying that, M is this whole story about how, like, mob rule's bad. Mm-hmm. And, like, not only is mob rule bad, but you also cannot trust the police. Right. And, like, the police have to cooperate with elements outside the police to ever get anything done because nobody trusts the cops. And, like, so it is kind of a, number one, an anti-authoritarian story. Uh, but number two, like, this story, and again, obviously, in the lead, run-up to the war, true crime is a booming in Germany. So the fact that there's a popular film about a child murder is not surprising. Yeah, Krakauer is kind of overgeneralizing. The, and that's, I was yeah. just curious, I was just, that was, a, again, I don't have a lot of uh, experience with German expressionism, and that's one of them that I have. And I that's was my big takeaway from M, is how interesting and kind of, anti-fascist it is in that run-up to uh you know the rise of the nazi party right so yeah that's i mean again an interesting sort of debate but here's the other side of it now i think this is where krakauer's uh read of dr caligari becomes interesting okay because uh he alleges that he had an original script from jankowitz and meyer that uh did not include the frame narrative that we were talking about earlier okay yeah i've heard of this that it was just the story of this mad murderer on the loose you know Uh, yeah i believe it starts with caligari coming into town and him escaping at the end there's also an early version of the screenplay that just has like the front half of the framing narrative but no like wraparound the front half is like at a yeah, it's like a different something. thing. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of different versions of the screenplay out there, I guess. And, of course, you know, when, when uh, Krakauer is writing this, it has been 20 years since he's seen the film. They don't have DVDs. Yeah. And so, and again, this is not a movie Hard that gets... Hard to get a print. You can't just walk down to the library and check it out. Yeah, yeah. and they're not regularly getting re-released either, uh, especially a movie like this. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> well, it's a silent film. It's the 40s. I was making a yeah. joke about yeah. how, yeah, Berlin was in rubble. Yeah, Dalton, there's, there's also problems. Dalton, what's a movie you watched 20 years ago but you haven't seen since? Oh my god! Like all of them. Yeah, you know me. I don't rewatch Pick one. Uh, the Fox and the Hound. Now write an essay. Yeah, a seminal essay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was ten. I don't. Now, it's now, not fair. Again, Krakauer alleges he had a copy of the uh, screenplay that he and working probably with. referred to that when he wrote referred his book. to that when he wrote his book. So I mean, it's not like he didn't have any information. It was only recall. But but he does also recall the wraparound and the uh, the, the argument he makes there is that. What uh, Jacobowitz and Meyer were trying to do with the story itself was about the madness of World War One, where these people are controlling you, making you into a murder, mm-hmm. and that it's, it's, it's insane to allow that sort of mind control to take place on a societal level. And that's a very sort of rebellious, um, very sort of liberating um, possibility in cinema. But then when you have the wraparound and it's just this crazy person's story – um, that's he says takes all the teeth out of it. I would agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely, I, th- I think he's right there too. Yeah, yeah and again, probably not a popular idea, right? <laughs> the the idea that the war was bad. I mean, we're having the, the Germany's having a hard time in the twenties. Well, I mean, I mean, again, Krakauer was writing this. I mean, I, I know yeah, I'm thinking about just the writing of the film of and right, like trying film. to get this kind of subversive story into theaters. This sort of anti-nationalist. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I understand that uh, Meyer and who's the other Jacobitz. Well, Jacobitz are pacifists when they meet. Yeah. They're, they're already pacifists, and so they've kind of got yeah. that coming into there. I think one of them was a war vet. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think they both might have been. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 most German men of a certain age would have been. Yeah, well, wars will make a pacifist out of you. Um, well, they can anyway. Uh, that, well, they could do one, one that, of a couple that, of things. That, there's, there's, there's a handful of things. There's, a, there's a list. Uh, nonetheless, uh, so I think that's an interesting, sure, yeah. way to think about the movie as a sort of pacifist text. But then it's not a pacifist text if it's just this sort of madness text because it's just projecting whatever you want to project on whomever you want to project it. And so I do think Krakauer is right there. Mm-hmm. And I find that to be just interesting, you know, as, as a sort of thematic reading is, is so we can take the film within or the, the film, the, the memory, the flashback within mm-hmm. the film as a, a particular kind of text and give it this sort of pacifist anti-war kind of reading. But then what we do with it after we've got the wraparound is – I, I mean, it, it is kind of troubling. It is kind yeah, of yeah. It does play into that idea of his that there is this need for a boss man. Yeah, yeah. And again, again, Caligari himself is kind of a good guy at yeah. that point, right? By the end of the yeah, in the right. wraparound, he is yeah. kind of posited as the one doctor who can cure uh, poor Jonathan. Yeah. Um, I think this is a good place to maybe pivot to. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
just the idea of uh, un- not just unreliable narrators, but like insanity in film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a trope that uh, gets a lot of play, and uh, you know, not always uh, great. Um, We're becoming more and more fair to it now. Sure, it, but yes, at that time it was just you know it was an easy way to just well, they're they're just crazy, and we'll just deal with them that way. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, with uh, both Arthur and I's readings, we've got. You know, unreliable narrators dealing with varying levels of sanity throughout storytelling up until, you know, what, 2017, 2018, when Unsane comes out. So this is still something we're playing with. And again, Unsane is very much a story of gaslighting and, and you know, being, being wrongfully held yeah. for psychiatric reasons, uh, which is a very reasonable fear that we should all have. Uh, it's pretty easy for somebody to commit you. Uh, but. You know, it's it is an interesting obsession in storytelling. I think. Do we think this is speaking to something within the human condition? Do we think it's just because of the the avenues it opens up for a story? Combination of the two. Where where are we at with this? And obviously, you know, we've we have already problematized some of the history of this sort of stuff. But well, I think madness for the film here is used more as a social diagnosis. Yeah. You know, I, I think sometimes it, it's used like Unsane uh, or um, The Babadook as the sort of social problem film. Like, this is an issue, a problem in which women are taken advantage of, and it's... Not taken seriously. Not taken yeah. se- you know, et cetera. Or the, the sort of the, the nature of those institutions and how they sort of fail those mm-hmm. with mental illness. Mm-hmm. But this, I think, seems to be more of a uh, cultural diagnosis, that, that there's, a, there's a cultural... Um, uh, diagnosis I think of Shutter madness. Island has a little bit of that too. Yeah. My understanding the novel has even more of it, but in Shutter Island it does seem to function as this sort of uh you know, it's set in the fifties very much to give it that uh that post war era that America is so proud of and to remind us that eh, this time we're so proud of sucked right. bad. Uh and again it does seem to be kind of a both with it again, I'm going to stick to the film just because I've I, everything I know about that novel secondhand, but the film does Shutter Island anyway does seem to kind of do that same thing, yeah. where, where the idea of imprisonment and insanity are speaking to just a, a larger inability to deal with our problems as a society. Right. Um, I think the other side of it, though, that I think is important to point out is the way in which it is sort of big and broad and lacks nuance and sympathy, the way in which you make an easy villain and that their madness is just like, yeah. okay, explain it away. I'm, I'm thinking about a sort of a surrealist-influenced film, um, Spellbound, by Alfred Hitchcock, yeah. okay. uh, where uh, the director of the asylum is mad. He's also insane. But you don't find it out. He acts normal the whole movie until you mm. find out he's a killer. And you know, then the madness sort of reveals itself. But it's a way to sort of explain away. Well, you know, sometimes crazy do crazy. It's a bit of Deus Ex Machina. In a different, yeah, different yeah. Way. A story hand waving, which was yeah. kind of my yeah proposed thesis, and that's that's troubling. Right. I, I think it's up there with the dream sequence. Uh, mm. Not dream sequence, but the the dream waking from a dream. You know, the yeah. whole story has been a dream. Yeah, oh, yeah. click and you and you and you were there. Yeah, yeah, that whole idea. You know, it's. It can be lazy. Occupies a similar space. Yeah, I, I think they're both mechanics that can come across rather lazy or half-hearted or cheap. Uh, but I think if they're used in a proper way, uh, I think Unsane's a great example where it's yeah. actually used to reinforce many of the themes of the film. And I think that's where the difference lies is the intention. And I think sometimes filmmakers use it to try to be hip or cool. I think of, especially in, in light of something like The Sixth Sense, where you had to have a twist and try to be big and have sure. something to keep your audience. I think of identity. Which oh, I think God, has a pretty yeah. weak ending. Yeah, um, yeah was trying to play something very similar. Uh, yeah. at the end, and so I, I think sometimes filmmakers just try to be edgy or cool with it, and yeah. it just falls apart. Well, and I think another like frailty, which we've both mentioned, I think yeah. smartly plays with religious fanaticism and and mental health. I think that's an interesting crossroads and in getting back on track. Caligari, I, you know, I, I think everything we've said about it, uh, it does feel to me that both within just terms of the filmmaking, the way that enforces these themes of reality being something that you can't get a handle on. Uh, it does kind of lend more to, uh, I don't know, I buy in, right? I'm not writing it off. I'm not immediately saying this is a hand wave to explain away why somebody would do a murder. I, I think there's, right. again, because the filmmakers have this specific intention of making this kind of anti-authoritarian film, I think that comes across. Even yeah. with the wraparound for me. Yeah, I think so too. I think it holds. Do you, how, do you, uh, how do you guys feel about it? you feel like the wraparound takes all of the teeth out? Because I don't know that it does. I, I think the wraparound's okay. I, I think yeah. it's an okay way to tell the story. Uh, again, it's yeah. interesting. It, it, it's interesting for it to just be this sort of extreme 
Um, yeah, I could do without Ed it. Edvard sure. Munch painting, you know, oh, come to life. It. You know, love I mean, it. I'm all for that as well. Yeah. And uh, but that being said, to sort of frame it as what's going inside this person's head, it it doesn't really. It doesn't lose everything. No, because yeah. I think it still allows... Look, if Jonathan's a protagonist, he's a protagonist even when it's revealed the story's not what he thought it was. Mm-hmm. So for him, Caligari is still a tyrant. Right. He's just this tyrant that, you know, gives him electroshock or whatever yeah, they were doing in the 1920s. That he is wrong about him, yeah. 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 So I don't think that holds. Uh, this is my first silent film, as I've mentioned. Uh, so, I, again, I only have questions this episode, it seems like. How do you guys feel this stacks up with other silent films? Dustin, you've already kind of intimated that some of them are too damn boring. I mean, they, they well, they do play a little slower. They, they have a different sort of pacing, I guess is what I would say overall. And uh, they're not always quite so visually interesting. Mm. And the reason why this movie works so well is because of set design. Because oh, I got yeah, sure. to say, that camera's locked down. Yeah, they're not moving yeah. a lot. It, it's, it, it's not a Carl Fruin well, camera. Yeah. You know, it's, Look, it, they're heavy. <laughs> yeah. They're heavy back then. And But, I mean, by 1920, people are moving it. People, oh, the, we the, just, we're the, experimenting with, with moving shots. Yeah, the Unchained okay. camera's out there okay. and being used. And so that's that's something that exists. And so that lockdown thing, when you don't have, when you have, again, something more realistic or uh, with something more like a natural kind of lighting mm-hmm. or even a studio kind of lighting with the three points, it, it does, if, if, this, if the story itself is not that sophisticated, and oftentimes in much silent film it wasn't yeah. you know, that sophisticated in terms For of... For obvious reasons. Well, I mean... D.W. Griffith in 1914 is sort of beginning who? this D.W. I don't know who that is. Oh, that, that dead person. No, I don't know who that is. But that novelistic sort of style of telling stories where you're intercuttering, intercuttering, intercutting, intercuttering between you know technical term. different points of action, different locations, yeah, sure. spaces. Those kinds. This is of, the thing we're doing. Yeah, that, that's that's developing. But a lot of silent film is not. It's still just linear, and it's just, you know, the guy with the twirling mustaches is tying the yeah. girl to the railroad tracks. And the is guy this a budget wife. constraint at the time, or like just like a lack of the the technique being disseminated? I th- Do you know? I, th- I think really just the, the technique being disseminated and just developing the techniques itself. I mean, we're, we're just talking about how do you tell a story? Yeah. How do I communicate this person's sad? I yeah. think the other thing, and Dustin might correct me here, just, just from my, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of silent. I mean, I've got you know, film history course where I've seen some shorts and things like that. Yeah. But it feels like America's approach to filmmaking early on was much more technical. It's mm-hmm. we can tell a story on screen. We can see action on screen. We can see movement on screen and kind of get in, insight into certain elements, you know, but it feels like a lot of the European and, and international approaches were a lot more artistic. I think of Milliers, the Lumiere brothers who were doing mm-hmm. a lot more painting cinema painting the, the film strips. And, yeah. And, Trick shots, trick shots, and then doing a lot of you know special effects at the time, uh, and then of course something like this, or even Dreyer, who's not experimenting with color, but I, I think Dreyer's still doing some very. Inter- I mean, he's doing some trick photography, obviously with Vampire, um, but you know, Joan of Arc is one where you have a very static camera, but his use of photography in the close-up is better, yeah. yeah, is drastically different than anything I think America's doing. Um, I think they were getting a grasp on a lot sooner the more artistic elements of what you could do with this canvas rather than what America was doing with it is just simple kind of storytelling device to draw the masses. Well, and again, I think the way which American storytelling develops into the classical Hollywood style is all about intelligibility of narrative. I mean, that was just the, mo- the thing that they cared about the Four most. Four quadrants, baby. And But they want to make sure that you know this is the good guy and this is the bad yeah. guy. And, and that, I think, also sort of increases moralizing that is that, a well, big thing for well, us and it's so archetypal it becomes yeah. quite boring it's like oh well, i know what's going to happen he's going to die and they're going to get married you all i mean it, in yes. the first you know few scenes now it, as a new art form you're not used to that and it's not quite as uh we haven't been doing it for 100 years yeah, it's yet not, it's not as rote yeah and so the, i think that experience is different caligari though i think because of its just extreme visual style again in terms of set design especially uh, keeps that interest there, and it is um, overall a, a much more ambitious sort of story as well than simply, you know, two guys walking down the street. They get fighting over a girl, or, fighting over yeah. a girl. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, even like a Harold Lloyd movie or something like that. Which I mean, I love Harold Harold Lloyd, or um, I like uh, Keaton. Keaton, or yeah. Uh, well, and that's yeah. I mean, that's that's early stunt work to the point, Arthur. Yeah, you made about yeah. technique and stuff, like you know, and that's that shows that heavy influence that vaudeville had on yeah. on early cinema, which I don't I don't know that other countries had that quite quite as much. That they had this this robust uh, 
just bench of performers to pull from when they were moving to film. I'm sure. I'm England's sure other countries had a vaudeville tradition. Say again. I'd say England. Yeah, yeah. They've, they've got, they've got traveling vaudeville. performance yeah. tradition. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the sort of lack of fun or whatever. I do think it's interesting though that uh, this movement here, and there's a handful of these movements we spend all of our time talking about. Uh, not all of our time, but a lot of our time talking about it, these sort of highly artificed, highly artificial. You're talking about German expressionism, German expressionism, as surrealism, as uh, the Soviet montage, noir. Yeah, yeah uh, noir to to a lesser extent because noir to, uh, does sort of play with realism as well. Okay, like like there's this there's a, there's like a starkness in uh, the chiaroscuro, uh, the contrast between the whites and the blacks mm -hmm. that's in noir but noir does feel like real streets with sure you're, you know, you're talking specifically about the these early aesthetic attempts to subvert reality yeah and gotcha. it's interesting because andre bazan comes around the 50s and uh or the 40s and the 50s and starts talking a lot about this you know realism being the the ultimate value of, of cinema to sort of be able to tell the truth of the pro filmic event whatever it happens to be and you know, the long take being one mm. of those ways in which you get a real sense of duration, time, space, and, uh, you know, the uh, characters moving in the environment. And that it was weird that we pay homage to that kind of realism. And yet. Actually, yeah, it is weird. Hold on one second. That's weird. We have it. Oh, hold on. Yes, hello. It's me, Van the Hutzog, here to talk to you about the aesthetic truth. Okay, do it. Uh, that's it. Uh, yeah, Herzog would say, right, that that's bullshit. Right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if it's, quote, real. All that matters is, is the feeling that's communicated real, which, yeah, is, is a line of thinking that I tend to agree with, which is why I did this dumb bit. But but I, I think Bazan's got an interesting point, though, right, about especially come working in the 50s and 60s, right, coming out of this this time period where uh, propaganda was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, it makes sense that this is a time period where people are like, no, truth is the thing. So it's it's yeah different takes on film. It's and, interesting. and and that held sway for so long. Yeah. But it does seem to me in the world of film studies, what we keep going back to are these extreme um, visual styles. We we that that's what we spend our time. I'm thinking about my, our, our film studies classes that we took together. Even you and I, Arthur, that uh, oftentimes the movies that we really resonated with. I mean, yeah, I like Rules of the Game. It was fun. Yeah, but I don't think I've seen that movie since I took that class. But you're down to watch if. Day of the week. Uh, right now, yeah. yeah, yeah. I could watch If right now. I could watch Caligari again right now. I could watch, you know, uh, Battleship Potemkin again right now. Mm. I mean, there, no. there's a way in which those films, because of what they're doing with editing or what they're doing with again, Carl Theodore Dreyer, well, yeah. looking at Vampire, um, or Unchian Andalou. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm using sort of silent film examples. Yeah, no, I'm glad you are because I, keep going. This has given me an interesting thought about modern film. And that when modern film does come around, though, still, though, we have some of it that heightens artifice and some of it that doesn't. And those films that we experience right now that seem to be really holding sway are those films which are absolutely artificial, but they try to gesture towards reality. I'm looking at CGI. And, yeah, the and MCU. The, and the MCU or the, well, Harry Potter or whatever. Well, yeah. the MCU just always comes to spectacle mind because films. it takes place in the real yeah. world. But, yeah, spectacle films. But the thing that I was thinking about that's this – it's kind of this interesting nexus of this this truth versus you know emotional truth conversation, right? Is you know that some of the most critically acclaimed American films from the last couple of years, something like uh, the Florida Project uh, or First Reformed, these are films that are heavily, heavily, heavily real, and yet they're not. They 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 exist in the real world. You see, you take textures and people and, and smells that you, you're like, I recognize this as part of my reality. And yet these are films that are not afraid to dip their toes into getting a little unreal. Kind of poetic realism. Exactly, yeah. 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 This, this choice to remove the veil of realism when uh, the frame can't hold the feelings that are trying to be explained, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what's interesting is we have these big, giant spectacle films, uh, and sometimes they don't really say anything, and yet you can have these these tiny films that just with like just a little bit of unreality actually get at something more it's less is more sometimes yeah for sure so anyway i was i was i thought about That's that interesting, a lot when though, i was yeah. wa watching because I, I kept thinking yeah bazan would hate this movie yeah. like i never read anything bazan has said about it but mm -hmm. it, it seems like the kind of thing he's talking against all the time yeah. and he would hate soviet montage for similar kinds of reasons yeah. it would seem um, just because of shot length, for if no other reason. But anyway, and, and, and the way in which we still tend to love—I mean, we think about Drive. Drive is a movie that is pretty realistic, but we're sure. but we're all the time talking about that color palette. 
Yeah. We're all the time talking about that soundtrack. Uh-huh. You know, we're talking about the heightened gore. The, yeah, that slow motion, you know, gore yeah. shot. Yeah, the, the shotgun Ultra to the head. Yeah, yeah, those are the moments of the film that really kind of make it work. Those less realistic moments, rather than simply just the gritty realism of a car thief. Yeah, that's why I brought up the Florida Project. Yeah. Right? It's it, it's it is those moments of magical realism that, that make that film kind of like exist from a child's POV yeah. and is kind of the heavy lifting of the themes of the film. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. It, it's it is interesting. You're absolutely right, Dustin. Like what is and is not perceived as too real or too unreal at certain periods in film history. Yeah. Are there any other big thematic pieces we want to look at with Caligari? I man, look, we could keep talking all day. I think we got to stop at some point, right? right? Well, let's render a verdict then. Um. So yeah, this is. And we have to do that. We do every time we get to anti trash. We all kind of halfway roll our eyes, like, "Well, am I gonna?" But we're gonna do it anyway. Shell for trash, Doctor Caligari, go, Dalton. Yeah, I mean, this is good. Like, this is really, really good. Uh, again, I would watch it right now, uh, and and that's not because I dozed off for one second. Um, it was literally a second. This film is sleepy though, but in a way that's fun. If mm-hmm. it, look, I watched this on a Saturday. It was too cold to be outside. That's when you watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Get the fire going, turn on a lava lamp, watch this movie, get under a blanket, and let it take you away. Let it seep into your dreams. Let it terrify, delight, and thrill you. This movie is a treat and a treasure. I can't speak highly enough of it. It's got to go on the shelf. Very good, very good. What do you say, Arthur? Agree. It's a shelfable film. Yeah, I, I'm with you guys. I'm totally, it's a shelfer. It's, I mean, it, there are movies that are in the canon. They're like, oh, okay, it's in the canon. I mean, Citizen Kane, I'm looking at you a little bit. And, We're uh, not scared to dunk on the canon here. Yeah, that's but, why we do a show about uh, movies you don't talk about in film studies classes. But that being said, this one belongs there. I, I mean, think it, you're right. It, yeah. it, it's just really, really entertaining and really interesting. And yeah, totally a shelfer. So uh, we have unanimous shelfage uh, all ready for 2020. So starting we'll, the year off right. We'll see how long that going lasts. strong. How long will we remain in agreement? Uh, went up until hostiles last year. Put up a united front. Nah, I think you turned on me sooner than that with Butch Cassidy in the Sunday game. That's right. I think you turned on me with the. Uh, yeah. Actually, I think you turned on me with Stagecoach. I yeah. Dustin turned on us with Stagecoach. I turned on you with uh, Butch and Sundance. It's kind of unwatchable. Stagecoach? Oh, yeah. You're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's extremely watchable. You fool. Butch yeah. and Sundance is kind of boring. Uh, All right. Yeah, so, but uh, look, New Year, New Us, 2020 United Front. Here we go. Yeah. All shelves, all the time. <laughs> okay. Make the shelf great again. All oh, right. Well, my gosh. Hey. Oh, boy. All right. Well, hey, it's an election year. Don't forget to register to vote. Yes. Uh, kids. Uh, remember, this is the year. Millennials, Gen Z, we got it, baby. Biggest voting block. Do Now's it. the time. Do uh, it now. If you want to talk about to us about how the show's too political, you can reach us <laughs> at good <laughs> underscore trash on Twitter. You can send your long form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. If you send us a long form email about how the show's too political, I will read it in its entirety on air and then probably have a little hissy baby rant afterwards. It'll be cute. Uh, I'll have a big hissy baby rant. Dustin will have a, a big no. You'll have a big grown man rant. I'm just gonna throw a hissy fit. Uh, good trash on with a couple snowflakes over here. <laughs> uh, Arthur's just covered his bases, making sure we uh, retain any and all listeners. I feel uh, triggered. Uh, Jesus Christ! Don't you, <laughs> don't. All right, good trash gmail dot com. That's the long form feedback. I already said the Twitter. Uh, if you want to help us keep the lights on, look, we we're we're not. Uh, it's not Earwolf, baby. Uh, we run it on a shoestring over here. Uh, so it's patreon.com forward slash GTM. You don't have to give us anything. We don't really care. It just helps us pay hosting fees, and you get access to you know, what we're, uh, we're excited about on a given month in pop culture, what we've been consuming, fun bonus shows, uh, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, last but not least, you've listened to a podcast before. Rate, review, subscribe. That helps us, I guess, out algorithm robots. I don't know. It's 2020 now. Does anything matter? Uh, no. Go outside. Tell a friend that you like this movie podcast. That'll be cool. That would be very um, cool. Arthur, I'm very excited. You have kept a very, very close uh, uh, guard of this marathon, playing it real close to the, the vest. What do we got next week? I'll let you take some guesses. You want to play that game? We're doing a movie okay. from 20 years ago. Okay. 20 years ago. So the two, year, the year 2000. 2000. Okay. And that's how 20 plays in. Okay. So it's from the year 2000. That's, we, I, no, there's like okay. 500 movies. We're talking a U.S. release probably? 
you're not going to give me any more hints. You want me? You're just going to give me the year two thousand. It's anti trash. It's anti trash. It's anti trash from the year two thousand. I have no idea. No idea. Arthur. Well, <laughs> he seems excited. Next week, we're going to take a look at a uh, little influential martial arts film. <gasps> Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. By the name of Crouching Tiger, Hidden oh, yeah, Dragon. Baby. From director Ang Lee. Yeah. I literally almost rewatched this like four weeks ago. I watched the first half of it while I was doing laundry. I'm so excited. I've been wanting to revisit this film for like three years now. I'm pumped. Oh my God. I watch this movie like three times a year. I'm Do so, you really? Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> well, I'm writing a dissertation Checks on out. stuff. Yeah, so. I know. I'm so excited about this film. Uh, uh, you guys know that this is like based on a, uh, like the fifth entry in a very famous uh, series of, of Chinese stories. I love that. Egg Lee says, no, 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 no. I don't need the preamble. We're going to skip to the end. Uh, what, a, what a director. I've seen the sequel. Oh, the Green Sword of Destiny? Green Sword of Destiny. Yeah, it's on Netflix still. I'm, it's a Netflix movie. It'll probably be on there until their uh, their, their fake money finally dries under. up. Yeah. yeah, until everybody remembers that speculative currency's fairy dust. It's fun. So, uh, Well, ladies and gentlemen, and friends beyond the binary, next week, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Very exciting stuff. I am so pumped. You You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.